First thing, so formal introduction, of course, obviously. I'm just looking forward to hearing. Uh, I asked for a report of some sorts, and I'm sure he's got it. So, Brother Pruce, you come, and it's good to have you back. And they're not even sick. Uh, when I got back from India, I was sick for a few days. So, so far, they're not sick. That's good. <laughs> thank you, brother. Thank you, thank you. Well, good evening. It is wonderful to be with you all again. Um, it is wonderful to have air conditioning. You don't know how much you miss something till you don't have it. And you don't know how much you don't have it until you are literally swimming in a pool of your own sweat on a rock-hard bed in Africa. There are some things I'll be saying tonight that have to deal with African culture, African living, and I don't at all mean for them to, uh, to sound negative or to sound grumbling or complaining. I'm not doing that at all. Um, I have a lot of respect for those missionaries and, and those pastors there in Africa and what they go through on a regular basis. And um, so there'll be some things I have to talk about their culture, but it's in no way a negative form of it. Um, so that's just a thing. If you think I'm complaining, I'm, I'm really not. I'm just going to tell things the way they happened, tell things how they were. And God receives the honor and blessing and glory through all of that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs chapter 28, while you're turning, I'm going to tell you the story of a man. Well, he's not a man, really. Uh, he's 19 years old. He's a young boy. His name is Gray, and Gray lives in a village of Zikipa. And Zikipa is one of those villages that if you ever found the middle of nowhere, you're about halfway there. And you've got to continue the rest of the way, and you'll find, eventually run into a small village of Zikipa. Now, Zikipa... Just the roads getting there are dangerous enough, but the village itself is very small. There's not a lot of industry. There's not a lot of buildings. There's, there's just a small village, a small little supply store. And in this town lives a man with his son, Gray. Now, Gray, he's the son of a pastor. He's, he's very smart, very, very smart. He can watch a person take apart a, a piece of machinery like a like a tractor or, well, they don't have tractors, so I'm exaggerating with that. But they would take apart things like motorcycle engines and, and other blocks and such like that. And if he could watch you take it apart once, he could, by memory, put everything all back together right and make it run again. And if you had a computer and you took apart different components of the computer, he'd be able to put it all back together again. He's very, very smart. He can, he can see something once and memorize how it's done. But there's a problem with Gray. Gray is deaf. He cannot hear. He cannot speak. There's another problem. Gray does not know how to communicate verbally. He does not know sign language. He does not know how to read. He does not know how to write. The concepts of, of communications, the concepts of, of counting and, and other things are very foreign to Gray. But his story is not unlike other deaf in Africa who have to go through their whole life some 40, 50 years without understanding what communication is. They see other people with mouths moving and they don't understand why. They see people going about their daily business and they have no understanding of who's going where and, and why is that person over there and all of a sudden one turns around, does something completely unexpected and people like Gray, they don't understand. So three people from our team that went, and I'll get into the team dynamics here in a little bit. Three of our members, myself not included in this, I was, I was in the city of Gunta 
uh, teaching some deaf men when this was happening. But they went to the town of Zeke, or the village of Zekipa, and there they talked with Gray for the first time and were able to show him a couple of hand signs and, and act out what they meant. And, and for the first time, Gray was beginning to learn how to communicate at 19 years of age. And he was excited. He was thrilled to be able to, now he could, he could do something and, and his friends would be able to do what he wanted them to do and they could tell him, and oh, it was a whole new world you opened up for Gray. Our team members were only there for three days and were only able to teach him so much. When the time came for our three team members to leave Zikipa, Gray's father comes up to David Bennett, our director, who is one of the men who went, and says, what are you going to do with my son? And David looked at him and says, what can I do with your son? We were not there to stay long-term. We were there to fulfill certain objectives, certain goals. We were there to set gears in motion, to set, to set in order the things which we're needing and, and to begin works that would last years into the future. But we ourselves were not there as a permanent fixture of permanent ministry. Though some of the things that we were able to change, some of the people that we were able to witness to, some of the lives that we were able to touch have been changed for all eternity. We ourselves were there for only a temporal amount of time. And they left Gray and his father and three other deaf men there in Zikipa with no teacher, with no way to, for him to continue learning and to continue to learn how to communicate. Again, his story is not alien. It is actually quite common throughout the continent of Africa and many places around the world where the deaf are overlooked, neglected, and simply just not invested in educationally or for a job or anything else. And so one of the reasons we went to Africa was to be able to go and to help people like Gray and to be able to teach the Africans to be able to witness, reach, and teach the deaf in their own communities. If you're with me in, in Proverbs chapter 28, I'm going to read a pretty silly verse, but it's going to have a very profound meaning by the time I'm done. Chapter 28 in verse 25, the Bible says, He that is of a proud heart, he that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife, but he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat. Tonight I want to, I'd like to entitle my story of Africa, and my wife, she could probably tell it better than I, and even from her own life and experiences over there. But I want to tell you about being fat in Africa and what that means, and, and I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Dear Father, as we come tonight together, as we praise and worship you for what things you have done in Africa over the course of the last six weeks, we thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for the safety and that was measured out to us in your will and your timing. We thank you for the opportunities that we weren't counting on and the challenges that we faced that we weren't prepared for, that you carried us through and you blessed and then you challenged and you encouraged and you exhorted and so many things got done that we weren't planning. 
But Lord, we're glad for every moment of it. Lord, we ask that your name be honored and glorified through all that's said here tonight. We ask these things in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen. The sash I have around me, this is a sash given to me in Abidjan, Ivory Coast, by a group called the Nouvelle Tribu. Basically, in, in Abidjan and in certain different areas, the deaf all come together because they are of one language. And when you are in Africa and you are of one language, that makes you family. If you don't know how to speak fam the family language, you're not part of that family. And so the deaf got together, and since they do not belong to any formal tribe, and most tribes would kick them out, they came together and formed their own, the Nouvelle Tribu. They are blessed to have a lot of Christian leaders and a lot of Christian influence in their, their new tribe. So this is not new tribe missions, it's the Nouvelle Tribu. It's the deaf tribe in Abidjan and in Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire. And it was a blessing to be with them. They gave me this. And I said, I was gonna take this, to, I was gonna take this back to America and put it up on display so that they would have people being able to look at that and remember to pray for them as they go out and they witness to other deaf and to other hearing people. And while we were in Abidjan, I'll get to it here in a little bit, the deaf would actually go out and witness to hearing people in mass, on Massé. We'd have 30, 40 deaf, and they would just, we went to the village of Dabu, and everyone they came across was getting a gospel track until all several hundred gospel tracks were given out. And some of them stopped and were able to witness um, to the best of their ability, and it was a blessing to see that because even here in America, a lot of times we look at the deaf and say, what can the deaf do? Well, they're doing a lot more than most Christians sitting in a pew. And they will receive honor and, and praise, and they will get rewards in heaven for that. But they do face challenges, and so I bring this sash out. I don't put it on a mantle. I don't hang it up in my closet. I bring it to churches so that you all can look and you can see and remember them and pray for them. Whenever you go to Africa, it's very important to have a team with you. It's, it's a dangerous thing to go alone. Um, accountability, uh, friendship, fellowship, these things are vital in, if you are going to have a successful ministry in Africa. So very briefly, I wanted to talk a little bit about the team God gave us, and you'll understand again why when I bring it all together at the end. Our team starts out with our fearless leader, David Bennett. Some of you have known him. He's been here. He's preached here before. Uh, he was a missionary in Sao Paulo, Brazil for 25 plus years, and for the last 12 or 13 or 16, I don't remember how many years, uh, since 2006, which would be 12 years, I guess. So 12 years, he's been the director of Silent Word Ministries International, and he has had the opportunity to travel around the world and to get to see deaf ministries and encourage people and disciple and train and really develop leadership around the world, and we're thankful for that. He was able to go with us for this trip. He was the leader. He hand-selected a, a group of individuals. Some he selected didn't want to go. Some others did. Those who didn't want to go, they didn't come, just so you know that no one was forced to go to Africa against their will. One of the groups that he brought with him, the other couple other than my wife and I, Whereas the family, um, the Bradleys. The Bradleys are 
Mr. Bradley, Raymond, he's a deaf man. His wife, Anita, is hearing. They have served in um, Bolivia. They have started schools and churches for the deaf in Peru. And they've also served in uh, Ecuador for the past 30 years. They specialize in teaching deaf and in education, in education ministries. Mr. Raymond Bradley, though he was deaf his whole life, he has a master's degree in special education from Pacific University. Mr. Bradley, he, he was given a task with his wife, Anita, to come and teach the rest of the group and then some of the churches we were visiting how to teach deaf people for the first time. Again, we were going to be going to people who did not know how to communicate. They did not know ABCs. They don't even really understand the concept of counting. One, two, three, four, five, addition, subtraction. These are all things we were going to have to teach them in a short, short amount of time. So we brought him on, on board, and it was very vital that we had him and his wife. Their son, um, their son Paul, he's a little autistic boy of about 18 years of age. Uh, he's hard of hearing, and he speaks Spanish. So I didn't understand much of what he said. Um, he would sit there, and he'd say something in broken Spanish. I said, Paul. I said, Paul, I, I don't understand Spanish. I, I don't understand Spanish. I need English, Paul. English. And he would say, no, 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 And I'd say, Spanish. No, I want English. And we'd go back and forth. He, he, was, he warmed up to everyone else on the team, and, and he was a very valuable member uh, he could relate to people. Uh, we had two other single men on our team. Three, three, I'm sorry, three other single men on our team. We had Ben Muldoon. Ben Muldoon, he is an engineer, um, mechanic, and business major with a master's in, in biblical studies. And he is joining Silent Word Ministries next year. And he's looking at doing deaf ministries up in, um, up in Western or Eastern Europe based out of Romania. <coughs> We want to put a deaf college up there, and he's the one who's going to be heading that up. We're excited to have him. He was coming. Uh, he brought one of his disciples, uh, another David um, Navarro, a Mexican young man who went to Pensacola for biblical studies but also knows sign language. We brought him with us so uh, someone could interpret for Paul, who only seemed to speak Spanish. Um, no, I'm, I'm teasing about that last part. But... On top of that, we also brought uh, a young man who was more interested. He did not know sign language. He did not speak uh, French or, or any of the other tribal languages, but he has a heart for orphanages. His name is Kyle, and I can't remember how his last name is pronounced, so forgive me, Kyle, wherever you are. Kyle is this man who, um, he, if, if you ever meet an Indiana Jones, it's, it's Kyle. Um, he, he sleeps on the hoods of cars, he finds caves and he's in them. If there's an animal, he has to catch it. If it's dead, he has to try to eat it. Um, like, he, he went, he, he comes in, we're teaching deaf. He, he can't teach deaf because he doesn't know sign language. We probably should have sat him down, tried to teach him, but he wouldn't sit still. And he'd go out there and he comes back, I got an alligator, and he's holding an alligator. And I'm like, Kyle, why are you holding an alligator? It was there. And I'm like, okay. And it was like, I got a snake. Why'd you have a snake? Because it was there. He went and got these lizards. There, there are lizards in Abidjan and in Dabu. Um, they're, they're, they look like little iguanas, but apparently they have fangs like a snake and they have poison. 
And we did not know this. And Kyle did not know this either. And so while the natives would run away from some of these lizards, Kyle's running at them and jumping on them, cornering them, and picking them up. And he never got bit. Um, so I think God just blessed his ignorance. And so he's holding up these lizards, and, those, and the, the Africans are looking at him like, are you insane? Why are you holding this thing? Oh, it's Kyle. He, he's, was, he was a very important part of our team, though, because if you ever needed something done, he was this fearless guy who jumped right in and do it. Uh, he, had, he had great zeal and great passion. We're thankful that God made him a part of our team. We have um, several single ladies that went with us, three of them that come to mind, four, one left us. Um, the one that left us, she worked as a mechanic in a, in a factory here in the States, and they only allowed her to be gone for three weeks. And so she was here. She was also looking at orphanages, but God touched her heart with the deaf and other ministries that she got to be a part of, and, and she went back. She was sorrow that she couldn't stay with us the whole time. Uh, one lady, Noemi, um, it looks like Naomi, but it's pronounced Noemi, which is like no name in Spanish, I guess. I don't, I don't really know. And Noemi, she came, and her and one other lady, Carrie, if ever we went through a market or ever we went through a city, if we stopped for more than two minutes, there would be a mob around these two women. And the mob would be made up of kids, and kids just swarmed them, and they were just, if you wanted someone for a children's ministry, you wanted one of these two women. And the kids were just drawn to her. Um, Noemi had a ukulele, and even the deaf were enthralled with playing a ukulele. They couldn't play. They couldn't hear it very well, but, you know, they loved it. Carrie was a nurse. We needed her assistance more times than we really cared to admit. Um, we had one other lady who was a ex-Army uh, supply officer. And so that kind of comprised our whole team. And God brought us all together, and we, we went and we flew out of, of a JFK Airport, and we got to, um, trying to think of the capital city of Monrovia. We got to the capital city of Monrovia, and we weren't really delayed in our coming, but it was really late when we got there. Uh, we left at 10.30 uh, this time zone in the evening, so it was nighttime. We flew from here to Amsterdam, from Amsterdam down to, to Monrovia, and it was very late when we got to Monrovia, and we had a five-hour ride in two Jeeps where all of our luggage was crammed into, and all 13 of us and the two drivers were crammed into, and then we headed off down the bumpy roads. As we head down the bumpy roads, we come across checkpoints with armed guards. Um, Mr. Bennett was in the... Was in the Shotgun seat in the first car. I was in the shotgun seat in the second car. Um, and as we went through, they would, they would ask the first car what you're doing, who's coming, and what are you going to do, wherever you're going. And they come back to me, and they try to collaborate and see if the story's matched. I guess they did. Um, we eventually got through all 25, 29 checkpoints and finally made it all the way up to the top of, of uh, Liberia to a small village of Gunta. Now, when I say small village, it's small, but it's the second largest city in the country. And there we were with a, uh, we were with a church that was already established. It was with IPM missions. It's called uh, Great Fundamental or Independent Fundamental, 
It's a long name. Great Commission's Fundamental Baptist Church. And there we got to meet some of the African pastors. There, there were no American pastors. These are African nationals pastoring these churches, which was great to see. Um, and it was wonderful to be able to meet with them and to share in fellowship. Um, but we did get to see some of the African flavor, some of the African culture, how that mixes in with some of the churches, uh, which was good for some of our team members to see because not all churches run like American churches. Some churches, you have conga lines coming up to the front to leave your offering in a plate. Some churches, you start at nine, you don't get done till three. I mean, just things are, things are different. And we got there and we began to work with the deaf uh, that were there. They have a deaf school. They have five deaf men who are about 29 to 23 years of age that teach in the deaf school. These men have only been saved for about a year, and they're teaching at a Christian school. They do not have any college education. They have an eighth-grade level education themselves, and they're teaching the next generation of deaf. So already they have a pretty daunting task in front of them. As we're there, we were able to teach them how to train up little kids and, and young children who were deaf. And uh, I think the oldest student that we had our first week was 40 years of age, who, again, he did not know the alphabet. He did not know how to communicate. He knew nothing. And God allowed us to learn in, in about a, our first week's time how to work with that kind of individual, how to teach them, how to train them, and get them on the road to learning other things. One of the concepts that's, that's very difficult in missions to get a grasp of is if your people do not know how to read and they do not know how to write, you will not have a successful ministry. A lot of times preachers think if a, if a, if a missionary comes and, man, he's, he's a fireball, he holds my attention all the time, and he can just preach the gospel, he's going to do great on the mission field. Well, the mission field has other challenges that not always are met with a doctrinal answer. I mean, what do you do when they come to you and they ask you, you know, I have two wives, but I'm saved. I want to be a member of your church. What do you do? You know, they come up to you and they give a testimony and you're not really sure if they're even saved or not. I mean, just random things are going to happen. Pastors that are nationals, they don't have enough funds. They don't have enough food to feed themselves if they take on a pastorate role and try to study the Bible and pray on a, on a more consistent basis, they're not going to be able to work their gardens like they used to, and they're not going to have food to feed their families. What do you do with them? You know, how do you get them to support themselves? How do you teach them these things? They bring up a next generation, and they don't know how to read or write. What do you do? These are all challenges you face on the mission field. They don't teach us the answers in college. That's why we went to Africa, kind of learned them ourselves. So you have to understand that when we got there to teach the deaf, there were only four of us, well, really three of us, David Bennett, Anita Bradley, and Raymond Bradley, that actually knew what we were doing in teaching the deaf. The rest of us were all learning just like the other men. And so we got to learn, and we got to learn how to teach, and, and I enjoyed the experience. My wife got to do it a little longer than I did. Um, about halfway through our time in Gunta, they separated the elderly men the, the deaf men who were the teachers, and then myself, Raymond Bradley, and Ben Muldoon, we got to teach them uh, doctrine on a more college level. So I got to teach them the doctrine of heaven. I got to teach them the doctrine of God's throne. 
uh, the deity of Christ. We talked about hell. We talked about uh, soteriology. We talked about false doctrines. We talked about many different subjects and were able to train them and teach them. And that was one of the parts I really enjoyed the most. I really enjoyed being able to sit down and systematically teaching doctrine and teaching uh, a philosophy of missions and ministry that is in, in uh, agreement with Scripture. While we were there, um, I did learn I might be allergic to something else. They would take uh, wood and chop it into little bits. They would set it on fire and cover it with clay. And they make charcoal out of this. Well, I am apparently allergic to the charcoal smoke. So I'm trying to teach while my sinuses are just going absolutely haywire. So I didn't get malaria, and I pray to God I don't have malaria. Um, hopefully that's just about as sick as I possibly could be. I almost had to go home early one day. I just, I just couldn't take the headaches and couldn't take the sinus pressure and everything else. Um, I wasn't going to come back to the States. You know, I was going to stay there, but anyway. So we got to teach there, and, and we got to be able to go out into the villages. And, and the more we were there, the more we walked around, the more people asked, what are these Kweepu doing in our village? And Kweepu is the mono term for white man. And they said, what are you doing here? We said, well, we're working with the deaf. Oh, you're working with the deaf? Yeah. Oh, Why? <laughs> because God gave them a soul. We want them to learn. We want them to grow. We want them to know Jesus Christ. Oh. Where? And we said, well, we're down on Sunday Market, down on People Street there at the Great Commission Fundamental Baptist Church. They have a school there. Oh, yeah, we know that school. You're teaching them there. Yeah. Now, understand, we were there on their summer break. Classes are not really in session. But we're there just for the training and the teaching experience. So while we're there, deaf kids out of nowhere come just out of the woods, just start pouring into the school every day, every day, every day for three weeks. And the teachers are saying that we, we just don't know what to do. Well, like, we have other things we're supposed to be doing, but more deaf are coming and they need to be taught. And they're just coming out of the woodwork. And so I can testify that you can be sitting there teaching one or two deaf students and, you know, each of us 13 had two or three or four and the, the other deaf men were with us and you got all these other teachers trying to teach and you turn around and there's two or three deaf people that you've never seen before. I says, what are you doing here? And they, they don't respond because they have no idea what you just said. And their parents don't show up and tell you. that The deaf just show up at your doorstep. And so you, you take them in, you train them, you try to teach them, you, you try to send them home. They show up the next day. They're excited. They want to learn. This is new to them. They're, they're thrilled. Well, wonderful. Praise God. So we got to do a lot, of, a lot of teaching, a lot of other things like that. We got to see some orphanages. And uh, orphanages, even over there, um, Liberia has been torn apart by war for over a decade. If you want to know more about that, get the book uh, Blood Brothers. It was written by a, um, a German man who lived in Liberia around the time of the war. And uh, it will talk about that for you. But Liberia, they don't really know how to grow their crops very well. They don't understand agriculture very well. They don't understand animal husbandry very well. 
They don't understand construction very well. They, there's a lot of things they just don't do. One, because they've never been taught. Everything is, I just watch somebody do it and I try to do it myself. No one really corrects me. I just go around doing things. And um, so they'll go into an area, they'll cut down the woods and they'll burn it to the ground and they'll try to plant their rice fields in that. Well, when you burn an acre of the ground, you incinerate the first eight inches of soil. You destroy all the valuable nutrients that are in that eight inches of soil. So when you plant your crops, very, very little, about 20% of it's actually going to grow into something that's useful. Well, they don't understand. They think, oh, well, this soil must just be bad. So they cut down another acre and burn that to the ground. And that doesn't do, it does the exact same thing. So they just keep doing this. You kind of can see the problem in, in just leveling your entire forest and burning everything to the ground and destroying your soil. There's a missionary over there named, um, his last name's Kitridge. He went over there with the intention to start churches and schools, but when he saw what they were doing, he says, if I train up a national to be a pastor, he can't support himself because they can't feed themselves. There's fruit growing on trees, but sometimes the kids pick it off and use it as a soccer ball. Um, if you do get fish, it's something very rare and something very valuable. I didn't exactly like the fish. So I, you know, we would give it to the little kids that came along, and oh my goodness, it's just, you understand, it's, it's the whole fish. Eyeballs, tails, fins, everything. And the kids, they like look at it like, you got a fish. It's like, here, you want the fish? Ah, oh, they just run off with it stuffed in their mouth. It was quite cute. But this is the world they live in. You understand, for years, they would look around in the trees just looking for something to eat. And even to today, a lot of them, they'll go through times where to just to buy a cup of rice is too expensive. And several families have to pull their funds together to buy one cup of rice so they can split up that rice among all their family members and, and individuals. I mean, it, it's, it's conditions unlike what we've ever seen. And then you take that and you, then you add an orphanage to it that's not supported by American funds or by the government funds. The orphanages there are very sad. They are pretty, I wouldn't say barbaric, but they're pretty stone age as far as what conditions are allowed. I mean, one of them that we visited in the capital city of Monrovia, one of the roofs had caved in, and so kids were literally sleeping on stone slabs on floors and, and on wood planks. I mean, it's just... If they, did have, if they did have a mattress, they put as many children as could physically fit on that mattress, and the kids would sleep on that, but everyone else just slept on whatever was straight enough to sleep on. And so one of the things we did do, um, it, was, it, was sort of, it wasn't out of the ministry funds, but it was out of our own pockets, is our, our men, and, uh, men, women, and individuals on our team, we gave money to actually buy that one orphanage, and the orphanage was, was one that we would agree with doctrinally. We would agree with how they did things. Um, <coughs> it was associated with a good church, and the kids were being taught right and everything like that. So we would agree with it. We don't agree with all the orphanages and with all the systems, but this was one that we did agree with. So we gave money for a new roof, and we also gave money for every child there to get a mattress. And um, we were able to be a blessing in that way. We, that was something we didn't plan on, but when 
men and women on our team saw the need that was there and saw the children and they're like, well, let's just, it's not that much. Let's just give it to them and, and build it. We did learn something because there were other projects that needed to be done, but we, it was a time where we got to learn prioritizing. What do you want to do? Do you want to fix up their classroom or give them a bed to sleep on? Do you want to give them a desk for their school or do you want to fix the roof in their dorm? You know, what, what, what takes priority here? And it was a great, valuable learning time for Kyle and for um, Carrie and for others that were there. We enjoyed that. Then we, from there, we went to Monrovia. Um, we got to go around. One of the churches we were supposed to visit, they lost communication with us somewhere. And so Sunday came, they didn't show up. And so we called another man who was a pastor in the area and we just walked all the way to his church. And there we got to give our testimonies. Uh, Brother Bennett got up and was able to preach and was able to witness and, and testify. Again, these people, they're like looking at us like, what are these Kweepu doing here? And uh, it, was very, it was a very good opportunity. We got to see some other orphanages. Uh, the Sunday night, last Sunday night we had in Monrovia before heading to Abidjan. We were able to go with the deaf men. The deaf men were able to sacrifice some of what they did have, and they got taxis from all the way up in the north of Gunta and drove all the way down to Monrovia to meet us. And we got to gather up a bunch of deaf and had a church service that was there. Um, a, a group of the people came forward. A group of the deaf wanted to come forward and, and make professions of, of faith. Uh, we got to question them. We got to challenge them. Um, the two men I was, I was working with, uh, they both prayed and made professions, but I don't really understand their language all that much. And so they're still working with some national leaders there in Monrovia. And so I'm not, gonna, I'm not smudging numbers to make myself look great or anything like that. I am saying they seem to understand the gospel. They understood the concept of what sin was. They understood that there was a penalty for their sin and that Christ died on the cross for that. And that only through trusting Jesus Christ alone could they have salvation. Um, they understood that baptism doesn't save you, works don't save you, church membership doesn't save you, Allah can't save you, secret societies and worshiping spirits in the woods can't save you, only Jesus Christ alone can save you. And when they understood that, I let them pray. And, and I, I, my personal philosophy in ministry is I do not lead somebody in a prayer. If they understand and they know they're guilty, they know the consequences of their sin, they know that Jesus Christ saved them, I want them to talk to Christ and talk to God on their own. I'm not gonna sit there and, and take their hand and say, copy me, say my words, copy my signs. No, none of that. You understand, you do it yourself. They've gotta take the first steps themselves. Um, when we got to Abidjan and we got to meet the Nouvelle Tribune, the education level in every, the education was greater in Ivory Coast. The economic structure was greater in Ivory Coast. The infrastructure for the country was greater in Ivory Coast. The transportation system and agriculture and animal husbandry were all f f much, much, much greater in Ivory Coast. And there was a lot of greater opportunity. And so when we get there, a lot of the deaf were educated. In fact, one of the schools that Andrew Foster started was right there in Abidjan, and it still is churning out educated deaf men and, and deaf women. Now, it's run by the government, and they don't talk about Andrew Foster because Andrew Foster was a religious leader, and they don't want that taught in their school. 
So you have a school that started by a Baptist pastor, a Baptist missionary, for the purpose of preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, they need to learn how to read and write. That is the, really the purpose we went to Gunta in Liberia. And so we were matching up with Andrew Foster's philosophy of ministry again, and it got to be great to stand right on that ground, right where he started, and there we preached the gospel once more. And there we gave a clear testimony of, of who Jesus Christ was, where he lived, how he died, how he rose again, and what they must do in order to receive salvation. That night we had more people come up and want to trust Christ. Again, I worked with two men. Uh, one, was, uh, one was Peter and the other one um, was Charles. And we got to talk with them. And again, I really didn't understand their signs because they're, they're talking in French or spelling in French, and their signs are all French. So did they get saved? Honestly, I can't tell you. I direct, after I, I told them what I could tell them, I made it as clear as I possibly could. They just saw the gospel pantomimed. They both prayed, and they both said that they trusted in Christ now. So I took them over to Léonce, who I, I, I call him the chief of the Nouvelle Tribune, and I talked with him a little bit about that. He's accepted that title. He doesn't really think himself as a chief, but he was one of the top uh, interpreters in all the country. He worked for the government before he surrendered his life to ministry. And so, Leonce, I, I told him, you need to go to Leonce and explain the decision you just made. And they're like, okay, we will do that. And Leonce will be able to determine whether or not they truly trusted what they're trusting in and, and other things like that. I would not be able to do that so well. We were able to go from there. Uh, we then took a group of them out for a week to a camp in Dabu. And in Dabu, uh, we got to teach. Again, I got to teach levels of doctrine. And the first topic I was given to preach, the first morning of camp, persecution. I thought, what? Half these deaf are not saved. The other half that are saved or claim to be saved, some of those come from churches we probably wouldn't agree with. You want me to teach persecution? And he says, we need to weed them out. He says, weed them out? What do you mean we need to weed them out? He says, if they're going to make a decision to trust in Christ, they need to count the cost because all that live godly will suffer persecution. And I sat there and says, you make a great point. The Bible does say that. All who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. I said, okay, I'll do it. And you know what? It made the deaf count the cost of the decision that they were about to make. I got very graphic with them. I told them stories of what happens. I told, showed them illustrations. I, I brought one man up and beat him in front of them to say, this is what happens. They will pull you away from your family. They will take rods and bats and sticks and they will begin to beat you. Those that don't have anything will pick up rocks and throw them. And those that don't have strength to throw will come over and stomp on you till you are dead. I've seen such things happen in, in India and, and Tibetan and, and other countries. There are places where Christians are martyred in the streets, shot. And you'll see men, Arab men, bring their children and lean over the dead body and take a selfie. I say, you understand, this is what's going to happen around the world. 
I says, luckily it's not in Ivory Coast right now, but this is going to happen. So I actually had to talk to a bunch of lost people that if they trust in Jesus Christ alone, they're going to suffer persecution. You know what the amazing thing was? They didn't back down from the decision of trusting Christ. But now they know there's going to be a cost. They're ready. They understand. From there, we began to teach about other things. We talked uh, about salvation. We talked about the deity of Christ. We talked about friendships and we talked about a great number of other scores and, and many, many of, the, of them that came accepted Christ as Savior and gave clear testimonies of, of their faith in Christ alone. And we're thankful for that. We're excited about that. And it also makes me kind of sad because they don't have a lot of people working with the deaf, both in Liberia and in Ivory Coast. We were able to go on the radio there and, and give out radio programs about reaching the deaf and working with the deaf. And in Liberia, we got to talk to pastors and got to go around Abidjan and, and say, we need to be reaching them more. And if you have Facebook and you follow Brother Bennett, you're going to be seeing a lot of videos of, of the men there. And they're asking, we need more laborers. We need more workers. Time fails me to tell of other stories of how God has provided and other things the Lord has done. I will be more than happy to answer other questions and such. Um, things that, that quite honestly would probably make you have quit the trip. We just shrugged our shoulders and just kept going. I mean, when you get sick, that's fine. Keep going. When you can't speak the language, that's fine. Keep going. When you're frustrated and your mind is about ready to melt because you're speaking two different languages that aren't your native languages and, and you're getting confused and you're not understanding the thing and, and the food is not tasting very well and it's not agreeing with your stomach, you press on. When a machete comes down and about chops your hand off, keep on going. That's what the nurse was for. When you say, Lord... Now I have a gash in my hand. The Lord says, that's okay. And he brings along one of the world's specialists in hand surgeries to come and look at your hand for you and reassure you everything's gonna be all right. God does things when he brings you through. He says, there are things that we were planning to do and we did them. And there was a lot of things I was not planning on doing and we did them too. And I thought, I really don't need anything. God is taking care of everything. And I got to look at the team members that we had, and, and some, of them, some of them weren't teachable. Some of them probably won't be on another trip. That's fine. They need to mature a little more. But others, they grew exponentially. Others, they got a burden. Others, they got a heart. Others... Their burdens grew. Their vision was stretched. They saw the world and as it really is in need of a Savior in Jesus Christ. And God didn't just work in the hearts of the African. He worked in the hearts of the team members as well. And so God works all things in and around for our benefit as well. And so when the Scripture says here that if we wait on the Lord, we shall be fat, we won't need anything. We'll have more than we need. And I could tell you the funny stories. When I got to Abidjan, the deaf look at me says, you're fat. Thanks for noticing. 
no, 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 you don't understand. You're an American, you don't understand. I said, I think I understand I'm fat. And no, you don't understand. This is the sign for fat. I says, yes, I, I know, fat, thick, I, I understand the sign. You're fat. Okay. Thank you. Make me fat like you. What? Trust me, if I could give this to you, I would. But it doesn't work that way. I could tell you lots of stories of being fat in Africa. I had a, I had a deaf child. He's learning how to sign for the first time. He opens up the book and the picture of a fat man with the sign for fat. He gets excited in his face. He's working with Anita, Anita Bradley, one of the people from Ecuador. He's so excited. He learns this sign. He folds it up. He looks around the room. He gets up from his chair. He runs around to me. He's got the biggest smile on his face. He's tapping me, tapping me, tapping me. Hey, hey, hey. Opens up the book. Fat. I'm glad you understand what that sign says, son. <laughs> and he bolted because he knew I couldn't catch him. <laughs> but when you wait on the Lord and you attempt great things for him, you're going to sit here and say, I, I, take, I take granola bars so I have something to eat. But I didn't need them. The Lord made me fat in Africa. I took things and provisions and, and things I thought I would need. I didn't need them because God would provide. God made me fat in Africa. And there will be times when you're going through your life and you say, Lord, I, I don't have what it takes to get through this. And just wait on him. Wait on him. Wait on him. And we did waiting. When we were in Abidjan, we timed it. We waited 80 hours one week. Nothing but sitting and waiting for a ride. 80 hours one week. No, I'm sorry. It was only 40 hours one week. It was 80 hours for the, for the two weeks in Gunta. We waited a lot. But we in, were in need of nothing. God provided everything. And so as I left them in Abidjan... And they said, we need someone to come and, and train our teachers how to reach the deaf. And they gave me this shawl, as well as every member of our team got one of these. I told them, what is in your hand? Or I asked them, what, what is in your hand? Use it for the glory of God. Wait on him, and he will make you fat. Doesn't that just kick every diet in the mouth? It's biblical. I don't mean you're going to get, you know, thick veins and pudgy, but you will not need anything. God will supply every one of your needs. <laughs> Father, by your hand, we receive everything. Life, breath, all things. You gave us Jesus Christ. You gave us the Holy Spirit as the earnest of our inheritance. You gave us your word that we may learn and read and study about you and know you. You gave us a spirit of 
not of fear, but of peace and of sound mind. You give us that peace which passes all understanding. Yea, daily you load us with benefits. You've given us gifts. You've given us abilities and talents. Lord, if we wait on you, we will be in need of nothing. The psalmist wrote, I have yet to see the righteous beg bread. Lord, as we travel through Africa, there are so many stories I could tell and time does not permit me. We went for one thing and you made us accomplish so much more. There were times when we thought we couldn't press on, we couldn't press on. We thought, isn't there a seventh day supposed to be for rest? And here we are walking five miles to a fishing village. Lord, isn't there supposed to be a time when we just take a break and here we are running halfway across Monrovia to see some deaf men and preach the gospel to them? Aren't, isn't there supposed to be a, a time when we can just stop, but here we are, we're, we're teaching about persecution and, and we're walking several kilometers through a village of Dabu passing out gospel tracts to every passerby. And there are times I think, Lord, can we go on? And you take us by the hand and you said, let's, let's go. I am Lord also of the Sabbath. And we pressed on and we continued and we did great and mighty things for the glory and honor of God. You've set things in motion that'll carry on for years to come. You've touched the hearts and lives of those in Liberia and Ivory Coast. And you've touched the lives of our group. And Lord, now I ask as this evening closes that you have touched the hearts of these men and women here. Lord, maybe you will call some of them to ministry and to missions and, and to areas around the world. Some of our team members were 60 years old or older. They still went. They were a great addition to our team. Lord, just because we're older doesn't mean we've disqualified ourselves from serving you. And you have a place for us to serve and we will be fulfilled in that. Lord, we ask now that your name would be honored and glorified. We thank you again for the opportunity to serve both in America, Ivory Coast, Liberia, and around the world. We thank you for this church that has given and helped support us to continue these endeavors. Lord, now as we continue on deputation trail, as we raise support to go and do this full time, we ask again that your name would be honored and glorified and magnified through all that we say and do. It is in Christ, our Savior's name we pray. Amen.